was there, and I had the unique privilege of, or I had the privilege, I don't know what you would call it, but uh, you got stuck in, with me in a car for an entire trip from BBC uh, to Lincoln Lake Camp over in Grand Rapids area and back again, and uh, he survived. But uh, through that experience, I got to learn a little bit more about uh, Andy Geisman. He's uh, got a love for 80s TV shows like I do. We talked a lot about A-Team uh, as we were on that drive and some other things. Had some fun with that. Um, but uh, more so than just our, our interactions and things like that and talking about camp ministry and things, uh, I got to see his heart poured out uh, at school as he interacted with other students on campus, myself specifically, and uh, preach as well. Uh, and every time he'd preach to teenagers, you could just see his love for the Lord. You could see his love for teenagers and having the Word of God preached. And so it is not a shocker uh, for me, uh, 10 years later, to look back and see, or look now and see that he's still on a campus, but God has promoted him. Yes, I said promoted him from a Christian campus to a secular campus. Because our Christian campuses need training and, and to grow in their faith with Jesus, but our secular campuses need Jesus. And so it's really a pleasure of mine to be able to welcome uh, my friend Andy Geisman up here uh, to uh, once again preach the Word of God. Thanks, Chris. Wow. And that's, that's why I come all the way to the Thumb of Michigan. <laughs> um, it is great to be able to be back with you here. I was here uh, this past August. And um, I was sharing in Sunday school this morning uh, when I was preaching here, and, and let's hope this doesn't happen again, but when I was preaching back in August, I got a text from United Airlines, whom I sold my soul to many years ago, uh, telling me that my flight had been canceled out of Detroit, but fear not, we've rescheduled you for tomorrow. And uh, I was here late in August, and I had to be back tomorrow because the semester started on the first day, so I was on the phone with united and uh, convinced them to put me on a I think a delta flight and we were halfway somewhere between detroit and scranton and i think we ran over a smaller plane uh, there was a loud bang and the plane dropped about 100 feet it's the only time i've been in a plane that if i wasn't buckled in i would have come out of my seat literally i banged my head on the on the bulkhead there's about 20 seconds of sheer terror i thought well all right this is it but i was sitting next to a pilot it, he was sitting right next to me and he's just What's the big deal? Well, we're going to die, for one, but that has nothing at all to do with what we're talking about today. Um, I, I do want to thank you uh, very much for, uh, for your generous support of Addison's Walk. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, someday, you will have that opportunity. You will meet students in heaven who will say, thank you. It, it's happening. Uh, this past semester was probably the most productive semester of ministry that I've had, and part of that is not being so worried quite so much how we're going to pay our mortgage next month, and First Baptist Church has played a very big role in our ministry, so sincerely, in the name of Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2 this morning, Daniel chapter 2, and as you get there, I want to set the stage for what I am calling this morning a university experience. We're going to be looking at the first half of Daniel 2 through the lens of a modern university. A little unorthodox, I realize, but so is my ministry, so it's okay. So we're just keeping up with the theme. 
Now, as you get there, um, I, I want to remind you of some uh, general preconceived ideas that we have about the book of Daniel. It's usually viewed one of two ways, or sometimes both at the same time. The first way is that the stories that we are familiar with, Daniel refusing to eat the food that came from the king's table, the fiery furnace, the lion's den, those kind of stories generally kind of get reduced to the level of merely VBS material. And we treat them almost as mythological, and we forget that what we're talking about happened in space and time, and these are real people to which these things happened, and the real people that these things happened to were probably teenagers when it happened to them. Daniel and his three friends were probably about 14 years old when they arrived in Babylon in 605 B.C. 14. So that's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is we tend to... Um, kind of trivialize the more narrative parts of Daniel, ignore the worldview bits altogether, and elevate the eschatology to a level of that is supreme in the book of Daniel. Uh, let's not make a mistake that the eschatology in Daniel is very important. It's called apocalyptic prophecy. It is very important, but it is not the only thing that Daniel wanted to communicate. So we need to have a little bit more of a balanced view of the book of Daniel. So we are only be go going to be going through verse 28 of chapter 2 this morning. We're only going to be going through chapter 28 of verse 2. Uh, those of you who have some familiarity with the book, and if you have a Bible like mine, probably has a subheading over Daniel chapter 2. says, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. We're not even getting there. We're not even going to talk about his dream. We're going to talk about some other things instead. So again, keeping with uh, the tone I've set this morning, this is going to be an untraditional talk. Uh, we're going to go about halfway through this passage. I want to set the stage and I want you to do your best to build a bridge of time and culture and to put yourselves into this, the position of these boys. Then we're going to stop and we're going to talk about the massive contrast between the Hebrew mind and the Mesopotamian mind, and I'm going to share some things with you about the Mesopotamian mind that we generally don't talk about in church on Sundays, but I am a theology and philosophy prof. I'm supposed to be nerdy. You should expect it. All right? So can we do that this morning? Okay, you can't stop me, so that's what we're going to do. All right, first thing is I want to make a bold statement about Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I want to make a bold statement about them, and it is this. The amazing thing about these four boys in the story that we have in Daniel, Daniel for his whole life, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, more commonly known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we don't hear much from after Daniel chapter 3. But the, the amazing thing is not that they maintained a private faith in God. That's not the amazing part of the book of Daniel. Now, I have a background that says, no, 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 that's it. Daniel, in particular, survived two empires. Two. The Babylonian and the Persian. Good, thank you. Pastors are not allowed to answer trivia questions. The Babylonian and the, the Persian Empire. He survived two. And he believed in God just as much as he did as he went in, right? Is that not the goal? Now, I was in a sister church of yours uh, just a few weeks ago in central New York, and I, I was talking about the same thing, and I asked them, 
how many of you, I took a survey, I said, how many of you think that probably for parents sending their students off to university, whether it be Clark Summit University, formerly Baptist Bible College, Cornerstone, Liberty, Cedarville, or a school like where I teach, local state college, community college, how many of us would probably say that our greatest goal is that we just want our kids to maintain their faith in God? I asked them a survey. And many of them raised their hands and they're thinking, there's probably more to this than that. And they're right, and you would be right too. Here's the amazing thing about these boys. The amazing thing is that they maintained a high-profile public witness for God in a hostile environment. Would you agree with me that there's a difference between those two things? Can you not tenaciously hold on to your faith in God and say nothing? Can you tenaciously hold on to your faith in God and have zero impact in the world around you? Yes, it is possible. Ladies and gentlemen, may I make a suggestion to you this morning? If our greatest goal is for our students to go into any school, whether it be a grade school, secondary school, or college, if our only goal is that they maintain their faith in God, we are aiming far too low. The church, all of us, did a good job of abandoning the university in the 1970s and 80s. We're starting to come back. Uh, particularly the resurgence of good Christian academic philosophical studies that are happening at the university level in really big research universities. It's good. It's coming back. But we need more. And if all we ever expect of our students is to keep their heads down and maintain their faith by sheerly clinging on to it, we will change nothing. So may I suggest that we can take a page from the story of the book of Daniel and we can learn something. All right, so that's just setting the stage. Now, we're just going to have this, um, this pen drawing that I made of Babylon up here uh, for a little bit. And uh, we are going to start working through our text to try to set the stage. And then we're going to stop, take a step back, and we're going to look at the uh, religious, historic, cultural issues that these boys are facing to, to try to put ourselves into the story to see why it's a big deal. And the question that we are asking within the whole context of this talk this morning is this. Do we have consistent, regular contact with the supernatural? Do we have consistent, regular contact with the supernatural? In other words, do we talk to God? Does he communicate to us? Believing that there is a God and communicating with that God are not the same thing. Now, you have to believe there is a God in order to communicate with him. It's kind of like my students who say, so you're a Christian, huh? Yes. Do you believe in God? Now, the eighth grader inside of me goes, yeah, dummy. I mean, that, that's got to come first. But I use a filter. and So you have to believe in God in order to communicate with God, right? Right. Now, God can communicate to you before you believe in him, but that's a whole other conversation. So the question is, do you have constant, regular, consistent communication with God? Do you talk to him? That's the question that is at hand, that is at the core of this part of the narrative. Chapter 2, verse 1, here is what the text reads. In the second year of his reign, so we are going a little bit back in time from 
chapter one. And chapter one ends with the boys graduating from their three-year advanced program in the University of Babylon. Ashpenaz is the dean of students. They have been forced to enroll in Ch Daniel chapter one. We have things like their meal plan, their identity cards, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and we learn that Nebuchadnezzar himself examines Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and is very impressed with them and advances them in their responsibility. And we're going to talk about some of the things that they learned. So I think we're going back in time a little bit to when they are students in chapter 2. Again, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. So, this is pretty common if we have some background, a little bit of understanding in the Old Testament. We know of other Old Testament despots who had dreams that troubled them. Namely, like in Exodus, Joseph had something to do with it. Whose dream did he interpret? Pharaoh. Pharaoh, your pastor's answering all the questions. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh had dreams, and, and so his cupbearer, oh yeah, the dude that interpreted my dream, I forgot, he's in prison, maybe I should go get him. And so they bring Joseph, and he interprets the dream for Pharaoh. So Nebuchadnezzar's no different, and he's having dreams that are keeping him awake. So it says here, Daniel writes that he calls in a list of guys, magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. Now some of those words we don't like in connection with Christianity, and rightly so, but you need to know something. If we lump all those positions together, and we just kind of call them smart guys, wise men in the New Testament, or perhaps for those of you who are fans of fantasy literature, they are just wizards, this is what... Daniel and his friends are training to be. This is what they're in school for. So they're not on duty this day. They're not in the work-study office, if you will. They're off playing ping-pong, probably. That's what all college students do, and there's nothing else to do. I would have majored in ping-pong myself, had that been an option. So Nebuchadnezzar calls in his wise guys, and he says, Hey, I had a dream. You need to tell me what it's all about. All right? So far, pretty normal Old Testament story, despot has a dream, wants to know what it means. Verse 4. Then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. Now, that's wise to say to the guy who holds your life in the palm of his hands. He is the absolute most powerful man on the planet. There is no bill of rights. There is no first phone call. You do not intentionally tick him off. In fact, you do what you do to keep on his good side, to keep him happy, fully caffeinated, lots of chocolate. If he likes SpongeBob, you let him watch it all day. Whatever it is, that, I'm sorry, I don't know where that came from. That's, that's the thing that you do so that you keep the most powerful megalomaniac, if you don't believe me, read chapter 3, happy. Oh, king, live forever. So once they get that out of the way, then they say this. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. Now, this, ladies and gentlemen, is not an unreasonable request. In fact, it's kind of smart. Do they want to be wrong? No, they don't want to be wrong. They want to be right. 
in this situation because to give the king bad advice or to misinterpret the dream is not good. And if they don't know the dream, well, that's going to make interpreting it very, very difficult, is it not? Particularly if you are merely a person who believes in the supernatural but has no access. Hopefully you're going to see how this theme comes up again and again and again in this passage. They're being smart. Well, throw us a bone, Nebuchadnezzar, and we will do our best to interpret the dream. Verse 5. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and have your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me the gifts and rewards and great honor So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Nebuchadnezzar offers his favorite altar call right here. Um, Do what I say, or I will turn you into goat food and reduce your house to dust. He says the same thing at the end of Daniel 3 in response to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't recommend that for an altar call. He says, if you cannot do what I ask, you are dead men in spectacular ways. However... If you are able to tell me what I dreamt and you can accurately interpret it, then I will reward you beyond your wildest dreams. Well, that's kind of a significant contrast between those two ideas. Would you see that? So this this is where they are. Verse 7, once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Come on, man, just tell us. Touche, you got us, we don't know, please tell us. Verse 8. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. Here's what I think is going on. I think Nebuchadnezzar is sick and tired of being lied to. I think he's sick and tired of having his wizards tell him what they think he wants to hear right so he calls him in guys i had this dream of a narwhal riding a unicorn and i had a shield and a sword and a crown with trees coming out of it what do you think that means well clearly that means you're the greatest king ever yeah that's what i was thinking right so i think he's sick and tired of them just getting on his good side and so he says look You guys have gone through the advanced program. This is why you are my guys. You should be able to to interpret the dream, but you need to tell me what the dream is. If you're so smart, tell me. I've made up my mind. There is one penalty for you if you cannot. Verse 10, they try one more time. The astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. Are they right? sure about that is there anyone on earth who can reveal the king's dream remember my question do you have constant regular consistent access to the supernatural i'll ask it again are they right yes they are there is not a man on the planet who can do what the king asks furthermore No king, however, 
great and mighty has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. Look at the last sentence. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. What they are saying is, what you're asking is outside of the realm of our reason. Nebuchadnezzar, what you're asking is in the realm of revelation. They are not fighting against each other, by the way reason and revelation we'll look at this at the end but what they're saying is what you're asking for us O king is merely in the realm of revelation which means it must come from the gods and they aren't here what do you want from us this made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of babylon so the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and the men were sent to the ping-pong room for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. So, all the wizards are being put to death, including Daniel and his friends. This is the decree. This is what they're facing. Ladies and gentlemen, this is about the time that the average college student would think about transferring. Oh, this is not good. My Christian club has been canceled. Oh, man, I have a professor who's really coming after me for my beliefs. I have roommates who do things that are not pleasing to God. I guess I better get out of here because clearly God would never, ever want me in this position. Are you sure about that? All right, so let's take some time. So we're going we're gonna to set the text aside just for a minute, or five, and we're going to talk about what these boys experienced as they got to the city because I, I think it's important I learned a long time ago when I was studying homiletics that not only do I need to know the text I must also need to understand the context and and that includes the history geography topography literature culture of the world out of which this text is being dug out or exegeted that means to dig out there's other stuff that comes with it so let's talk about some of that other stuff. Let's talk about what these boys would have experienced when they got to Babylon. So again, in chapter 1, you can go back and, and read that on your own, but it's, if we're looking at this through the lens of a modern university, and yes, I realize that's a stretch, but I did take an advanced class on sermon stretching. Um, I, want, I want us to think about that as the, as the admissions process. They're forced to enroll in the University of Babylon, King's College. Ashpenaz is the dean of students. They have a meal plan and there are, are ID cards. Oh, and some of the curriculum is talked about in chapter 1 as well. But here's what they would have seen when they would have got to the city. They would have seen a city with walls 80 feet thick. Probably about 50 feet from this step to that door. Maybe? Pretty close. All right, add another 30 feet for probably from this step to the back wall, all the way back in the foyer, walls that thick. Can you imagine that? That are 320 feet high with a circumference of 56 miles. Now this information comes from the Greek historian Herodotus, which is notorious for embellishing things, but this is as close as we have. Either way, when they got there, they would have been very much awed 
by the technological advancements of the city. Babylon is the largest city on the planet. This is 605 B.C. They would have been uh, overwhelmed by the technological advancements of, of the city and the size of the city. It would be like comparing Cairo to Los Angeles. Or maybe Scranton to Los Angeles. Maybe that's a little bit better comparison. But there's just, there is no comparison. Comparing Ju Judah, uh, Jerusalem, excuse me, to Babylon really isn't a comparison. And that's not heretical or disrespectful. It's just the fact of the matter. Babylonia is an advanced civilization. The Philistines were an advanced civilization. Israel was not. That's okay. I'm just saying for technological advancements, Babylon was really advanced. This is a big place. Another thing that they would have um, been awed by is not just the technological advancements, that, but they would have been awed by the near-complete idolatry of the city. There's one thing that probably did not exist in Babylon in 605 BC, BC, and that is what we would call an atheist. There's really not anyone who doesn't believe in God, or gods is, would be more accurate. If you were to survey 100 people and ask them, do you believe in the supernatural? Do you believe in gods? Uh, everyone would say yes. There's really not one person who didn't believe in the supernatural. The question is, did they have constant, consistent contact with the supernatural? Those are not the same thing. Um, so they would have been also overwhelmed by the near-complete idolatry as they would have marched into the city, and I'll give you an idea of what they saw when they first came in here in a few minutes. Um, they would have noticed that this university town was a very religious town, and that everywhere there were great temples to the gods. So um, kind of in the center there, in the upper right-hand corner, you see a giant ziggurat that's probably... Uh, would be the temple to Marduk. All their gods and goddesses had temples in them. And in their temples, they actually had bedchambers, they had living quarters, they had the priests and priestesses of each god or goddess was their job to bring in food, water, change the clothes, clean the dwelling places of the gods. They would have been completely overwhelmed by that. They would not have seen anything like that before except the temple, which would have been radically different in scope, in size, and in practice than what they are seeing here. So their minds are being blown by just the complete idolatry that they are experiencing in Babylon. Now, let me do... Um, let, me let me give you a, a, a guided tour. Let's talk about some things that they saw. So on the left side of the screen there is a, is a replica of the Ishtar Gate unless they were different than every other captive that came through Babylon, according to secular history, they would have been, they would have come through the Ishtar Gate. Unfortunately, it has not survived from antiquity. But again, according to Herodotus, <clears throat> very thick part of the wall, it was emblazoned with gold dragons, blue, gla <coughs> blue glazed porcelain bricks, Nebuchadnezzar's name on all of them, a practice that Saddam Hussein thought he would adopt because he thought he was the new Nebuchadnezzar. Didn't work out so well. And they would have brought them through that gate on purpose. How many of you have ever been on an official college tour before? Do you think there's a plan to what they show you and when they show it to you? Oh, yes. 
You think they randomly take you to, well, we're just going to pick a student's room at random and open the door. Mm, no. Um, in fact, it wouldn't surprise me if they have like model rooms, like you go to look at a model home. I bet no one even lives in there. I, I don't know that for a fact. It's just a guess. I'm just saying. So there are gates into the universities on the right. That's an actual picture from uh, the University of Scranton from their website. And they too have done a really nice job. It's not nearly as ornate, but this plaza that you're looking at, they have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on. This is what people walk through, and it's beautiful to walk through there because they want to impress you. And let's also, um, in our guided tour, let's, let's visit the bookstore of the University of Babylon, shall we? Let's do that. And let's try to understand the curriculum that these boys were learning and how different it is from how they were raised. Now, if I have an opportunity to visit <clears throat> a college bookstore, I take it. I was speaking at Alfred University in Alfred, New York this past spring, and uh, I go to the bookstore, and it was the middle of the semester, so this kind of section where they have textbooks is roped off. They, nobody really needs to go in there, but I ask, may I please browse, uh, and I tell them I'm a professor from another school, and they say, oh, sure. And what I do is I look at three things. I look at three sections, the philosophy section, the religion section, and the literature section. And I do that because if I can try to figure out and see what the students are reading, I have a good idea about the spirit of the campus. I have a good idea of where the heart of the university is, and is it bright with light, or is it dark with shadow? And I try to do that. Well, they would have had a bookstore at the University of Babylon, now, granted, they would have had cuneiform tablets, which are very bulky um, and hard to get around, but that's a good thing for us because cuneiform has survived the harsh desert conditions. So we actually know a lot about this culture. This is really amazing. And I want to share with you four books that if I were a betting man, I would go all in that they read. And you, you're going to say, what in the world does this have to do with Daniel? Hang on. You're going to see. And it has everything to do with having a high-profile public witness for God in a hostile environment. Okay? So just bear with me and just give me the benefit of the doubt that you know that I'm a super nerd because of what I teach. So here you go. There are four books, and they did not look like these. Two of them are Mesopotamian or Babylonian slash Assyrian. And the other two are Greek. First of all, a hero epic called the Epic of Gilgamesh. One of their great hero stories. It would not surprise me if some in this room have been forced to read that, and I would be overjoyed if some have chosen to read it all on their own. Uh, but it is one of the classic hero stories that has survived. That story in book form is 4,000 years old. It was ancient by the time Daniel got his hands on a copy. Um, scholars and historians and archaeologists tend to agree that the first known copies were showing up about the year that Abraham was born. These are old. Now, I'll, I'll tell you what's in it in a second, because the content is more important than um, when it was made. Second one is called the Enuma Elish. That is a creation myth. That is Mesopotamian, so it contains the story of the gods. Next um, is a book called Theogony. 
It's a Greek book, an ancient Greek book by a guy named Hesiod. Again, for those of you who uh, are like me and you're attracted to sandal and spear movies, if you've ever seen any of the Clash of the Titans remakes, the Clash of the Titans is the story found in Hesiod's Theogony. That's exactly where it comes from. And then probably of, of those four, the one that you would have some familiarity with, at least, would be Homer's Iliad, which is a story about an angry mama's boy named Achilles. Also a hero epic. Now they would have studied these, because these are the classics of the day. I believe that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are studying religion primarily. So they are theology majors. Not good theology, but they are theology majors. And here's what they would have learned in some of those cases. Um, the Epic of Gilgamesh, a hero epic, and Iliad tell the same story, different characters. So Gilgamesh is the hero of that book, and Achilles is a hero of Iliad. They both have best friends who are killed. They are both demigods, meaning they're semi-divine. One of their parents was a god or goddess. They both are seeking for immortality and know that they cannot have it. Achilles seeks to live on forever by making a great name for himself by slaying his enemies after they kill his best friend, Petroclus. Um, Gilgamesh, his best friend, his name is Inkidu, which is unfortunate. His best friend's name is Inkidu, um, whom the gods made to help control Gilgamesh because he was a jerk. And he went off seeking immortality, and he went and sought the only survivor of a, a global event called the Deluge. We call it the Flood. We call the guy Noah. They have a different name for him. So he goes and finds the survivor of the Flood, goes through many trials. He says, I finally made it. You're so wise because God spared you. I don't know why they like you, but they did. Please tell me how I can have immortality. So the Mesopotamian Noah kind of looks over his reading glasses and he says, um, no, you can't have that. What? I came all this way and you're telling me I can't have that? No, you're a tough guy. You're going to have to find, figure out immortality some, some other way. Great. Then I will make a great name for myself by building great cities and I will rule them. And there very was much a city um, in Mesopotamian history ruled by a guy named Gilgamesh. He may have actually been a real person, just like the Trojan War may have actually happened. There's a little bit better evidence for that. That's beside the point. But they tell the same story. Man has no hope. Make a name for yourself now. The religious ones. The story of the gods. The Enuma Elish and the Theogony tell the same story. Um, they tell how the gods made everything. There is a creation myth, but they all had pre-existing material to work with. They had creation kits. Kind of like Legos. They had stuff to work with. Or they made everything through means of procreation. Oh, and they made man. But they did not make him good. Particularly in the Numa Elish, um, the gods were sitting around one day and said, you know what, I'm sick and tired of cooking my own food, making my own bed, and changing my own clothes, and cleaning my own house. You know what we should make? 
we should make some kind of sentient, rational being who could do all that stuff for us. And the rest of God go, yeah. Yeah, for reals. Let's do it. And so they make, they make man out of clay, out of the dust of the ground, and they breathe into him wickedness. Because they sacrificed to God. Oh, that sounds like Christianity. They sacrificed to God and commingled his blood with the clay to make man. Well, that sounds kind of redemptive. Yeah, except for the God that they sacrificed, nobody liked him. Because he was a traitor. Like, well, we got to get some God's blood. Hey, how about Larry? Nobody likes that guy. Yeah. So they all beat him. Bam, and they beat him up, and they take his stuff, and they make man, and they make him flawed on purpose. Why? Because the gods felt that they needed man, but they didn't want him. So he would die off occasionally so that they could have new ones coming up because who wants to hang out with the same human forever? I mean, really? In, in, uh, the, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, you learn how the gods had plans to wipe out humanity because they got sick and tired of hearing them. Ah, oh, you're ruining our games. You're ruining our peace. Quiet, shut your mouths. And one of the gods rescued humanity because he loved them? Oh no, no, no. Because he realized, hey, we don't have humans. Who's going to do our stuff? Not love. So the Enuma Elish and Theogony would be the Mesopotamian and Greek equivalents to the Bible, so it would read, For gods so loathed humanity that one of them decided to let them in on a secret that the massive plague, pestilence was coming, and so because they had no other choice, they decided to save one of them. Oh, I'm going to put that on needlepoint and put that right on my refrigerator. Oh, that is my life verse. Oh, that makes me feel so good deep down inside. Um, if you're taking notes, um, this next slide, well, we're going to get through all this stuff here. Okay. So, um, for time's sake, I need to wrap this up. I can picture Daniel in my sanctified imagination. I took a graduate level class on that as well. I can picture Daniel in my sanctified imagination. Right? So we know from Daniel 1 that he, 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 he ignored the college meal plan, which was pretty good. Right? Food coming from the king's table is kind of like the kids at the University of Scranton. If you want to see how college kids eat well, oh my word. I mean, it's sick. So he and his buddies are not eating the meat. Um, best guess is because it was sacrificed to idols. We don't know that particularly. We kind of add that. It's kind of like we talk about the angels sing in Luke 2. They don't. But that's okay. So, um, so he, he's, he's ignoring that. So on his lunch break, he goes right past the pulled pork, right past the roast beef, goes straight to the salad bar. No bacon bits. Um, and I can see one of his classmates, let's, let's just imagine for the sake of fun that he is another captive like him from Macedonia, northern Greece. And we'll call his name Andreas. And I can see Andreas having a conversation with Daniel. And Andreas would have a new name, just like Daniel was given a new name. Um, so Daniel's new name, Belteshazzar, means may Marduk protect his life. Marduk, the chief deity of the Babylonian pantheon. 
So I can see Andrea saying to him, hey man, you know, let's talk about some of the things we believe. And so he would be sharing, you know, because college students talk about theology over meals sometimes. That's what they do. So he would have shared with him all those things that I just shared with you. And Daniel would have asked him another question, and he would say, hey, tell me what you think about the afterlife. Oh, and, and a look of horror would probably come across Andreas's face. He'd probably turn white. And he'd say, oh, we all know that that is our greatest fear, and so we make a name for ourselves now to avoid death for as long as possible because there are gods above the earth and gods under the earth where we will, reign, where we will uh, exist disembodied, just wandering souls, and it's just a level of how bad it's going to be because there is no hope and we will do nothing but feast on clay and dust. That was their best idea for the afterworld. And the gods of the underworld will just torment you. And it's a, it's a matter of how bad is it, not is it going to be good or not? How bad is it going to be? And I can see this guy saying, hey, Belteshazzar, I know those other four weir- three weirdos you hang out with. Um, I sometimes hear them calling you Daniel. What does that mean? That is strange to my ears. And I can see Daniel having a big grin coming across his face. Kind of like when my students start saying, so you're a Christian, huh? Can you prove it? I love, I love that. I love that when it happens in a classroom, and I can see him just starting to grin like the teenager that he is, like I am on the inside. Donnie L., what does that mean? And he grins, and he looks at Andreas, he says, oh, that means God is my judge. And Andreas would have just been completely struck dumb. You must live in abject fear. Oh no. I welcome it. You see, the difference between you and I, Andreas, is that there is one God. His name is Yahweh. He is a creator, like you believe your gods are, but he had no pre-existing material. He made everything out of nothing. Ex nihilo. He did so by speaking it into existence. He made humanity, and he he did use pre-existing material for that thing only, but there's one thing greatly different about man that you don't understand is that God actually likes us. And he didn't make us flawed. He made us very good. And the only reason why we're in this situation is because the first man, Adam, rebelled against God and my people, Israel, have sinned against God. Daniel's going to confess the sins of his people later on in the book. He knows that they are morally responsible. And he would say, I do not fear death. That is why I can take a stand for my God now. And I will tell you something else Daniel probably knew. He probably knew the scripture as much as he had. He certainly didn't have the completed canon like we have, but he probably said, let me tell you what I know about the afterlife. And he may have even quoted Job 19. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, he will stand on the earth in my flesh with my own eyes. I will see God. Death is not the end. Bring it. What more can you possibly do to me? Let's get back to the text. We're going to wrap this up quick. Verse 14, when Arioch, all right, so we've met the dean of students. Arioch is the commander of campus security. So when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. 
He doesn't go to him and say, this is not fair. We've served, we've served Nebuchadnezzar so well. <laughs> We're going to transfer. No, with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch explained what happened to Daniel. This Daniel went to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. He went to the king. The 14 or 15 year old went to the king. Not only did he not abandon the university, he goes straight to the top. Verse 17, then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends may not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. This is the first recorded college prayer meeting. He goes to, back to his quad, and he tells them what's going on. And you notice, here are the things that they don't come up with. Well, let's protest this authority, because that seems like everything would do. Ooh, 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 I know. I know how to deal with it. Let's create a couple hashtags for our, for our Twitter and Facebook accounts, like hashtag never, never Knezer. Hashtag not my despot. Yeah, let's do it. Ooh, no, no. Let's start a campaign, and we're going to raise awareness. We're going to raise awareness of how powerful and awful Nebuchadnezzar is. Yeah, that'll work. Hmm. No, instead of any of those things, what's their first line of strategy? Let's get on our faces. Because we have contact with the supernatural. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then God, Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to Nebuchadnezzar. Anybody want to call me on that? For wisdom and power are his. God, he changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. Wisdom that we should pay attention to in the 21st century, I think. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. I love this. He knows what lies in the darkness and light dwells within him. He knows about what lurks in the corners of Marduk's bedchamber. Nothing is hidden from God. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we ask of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Now, I'm going to sum up the rest and read one more verse because I have well extended my time. I'm just getting my power supply because I will walk out without it. Sorry. So, they interpret the dream. He goes to Arioch the next day and he says, Arioch, I can interpret the dream. Well, can you now? So Arioch, the king's guard, the head of campus security, he goes in to Nebuchadnezzar and he says, hey, there's a Jew of all people. This would be odd for them. Who says he knows your dream and can interpret it. Now, Arioch took his own life in his hands now. Right? Do you think he would be willing to do that if Daniel had not approached him with wisdom and tact? Some of your translations may say discernment. I don't think so. If he's a whiny little snowflake, why is uh, Arioch going to do anything for him? So Daniel goes, on, goes into the king, 
And Nebuchadnezzar says to him, is it true, Daniel, that you can interpret this dream? Now, if I were Daniel, I'd be feeling pretty good about myself right about now. And I'd probably make myself look pretty good to get an advancement so that I'm going to get, you know, be able to graduate with honors and all that. I'd be like, sure, of course I can, because I'm smart. I study. And that is precisely why I'm not in a Bible story. Verse 27. Daniel replied, no wise man. Remember what they said? No man on the planet can do what you're asking. No wise man, magician or diviner, can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. I love that phrase. But there is a God in heaven. You see, for Daniel, his classmates, they live in abject fear, without hope. Why? Because they have no contact with the supernatural. They believe it exists, and rightly so. They should but they have no contact. They live in abject fear because they, they don't know. But Daniel, Daniel, God is my judge. Not Belteshazzar, may Marduk protect us. Like, I don't need Marduk protecting anything. A, because he's not real, and B, no thank you. I have the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who knows my name, to whom I am responsible, who has sovereignly allowed me to be here. And that God in heaven hears me, answers me, and knows my name and will sustain me. I would encourage us today, let us be in contact with the supernatural, meaning talk to God. Let us learn some lessons about our first-line strategies instead of our last-ditch efforts. Raising awareness does nothing. Sorry. Change your Facebook profile picture to anything you want. Changes nothing. God deposes kings and raises up others. He is the giver of wisdom. He knows what hides in the darkness because he is light. Let us dare to engage. Make a dent in history for the cause of Jesus Christ. Amen? God, thank you for today. Thank you for the graciousness of my brothers and sisters letting me go over this morning. Uh, God, I pray uh, again, as I've prayed before, that you would use this church as a mighty beacon of light here in the thumb of Michigan. God, I pray that we would indeed be aware of the darkness around us, God, but we would come to you and ask for your help. We would beg in the name of Jesus. Oh, God, help us. Make us mighty for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We thank